Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. We're going to keep going in this series on, on money, and uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to pray first, and then we're going to look at, to start this message today, we're going to look at the story of Zacchaeus, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and uh, I think the Lord's going to really speak to us today. So let's just, let's just lift this up to him. Lord Jesus, we love you. We really, really uh, love you. And, uh, and that's what I want out of this service today, Lord, even money. What is this series on money? Money is just an excuse to get to know you more and trust you more and, and, uh, and uh, love you more. And so, Jesus, I just pray that your spirit would be present here with us this morning, that you would touch us, that you would draw us in. We're a family. Draw us together with bonds of love and joy and happiness this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, Luke chapter 19, verse 1 uh, Zacchaeus, famous story, right? We all learn this one when we're in Sunday school, those of us who grew up in the church. And uh, verse 1 starts this way, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he was a short, rich guy. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree. Now, I just, a brief rabbit trail here. My kids and I were talking again this last week, and, and this, is not, this is not in the Bible. I can't prove this, okay? So don't send me emails. Um, but it's something I think. I really think we're going to get to watch somehow. I mean, Jesus, he'll have the technology. He can make it happen. But I, I somehow think we're going to get to watch all the Bible stories when we get to heaven. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I want to I see the Bible stories in real. Some of them might have to have some fuzzy, you know, parts fuzzied out or whatever, blocked out. But, but uh, I think we're going to get to watch the, the Bible stories. And I'm looking forward to that. And this is one of the ones I want to watch. I want to watch Zacchaeus, this short little rich guy, climbing up in a sycamore tree. He's like a little kid. You get the sense of, he, he's like a kid. Like here's a guy who's got all kinds of power. He's a greedy tax collector. He's got all kinds of money. But around Jesus, he becomes like a little kid. And I think there's something in there for us right there. But anyway, for Jesus was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. We're going to come back to that. And received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the other people watching, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, right? They're, they're grumbling because in those days, just like nowadays, they didn't like tax collectors, right? Okay? And uh, not that I'm saying as an official church statement that we don't like tax collectors, um, but, you know, we don't like paying our taxes. Back then, they had a real reason not to like tax collectors. It was a corrupt system. The Romans actually encouraged, the system that the Romans had set up actually encouraged people, encouraged tax collectors to take advantage of people because how the tax collectors got paid was whatever they took from the people in addition to what was owed to Rome, they got to keep for themselves. So it was a bad system. It encouraged tax collectors to be greedy and corrupt and, uh, and violent and all that other sort of stuff. So they didn't like this guy. So Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house today. Zacchaeus is beside himself with joy. He's like a little kid. He's so pumped. And uh, he rushes off, but everybody else is upset. And then they go and they hang out. It doesn't tell us what they did. So did they have lunch? Did they have coffee? Did they have phosphat? They did something, right? And they got together, and it doesn't tell us how long. Were they together for an hour? Were they together for an afternoon? I'm not sure, but Zacchaeus was radically changed. Radically changed. 
He hurries down. He has Jesus into his home. And at the end of a meeting with Jesus, this is what he does. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in this story about Zacchaeus is the first fruit. What is the first fruit we see, the first evidence that this man has given his life to Jesus? What is the first fruit that he has been saved, that the Holy Spirit has changed his life, that he's met with Jesus? Is it that he goes off and spends an hour in prayer and Bible reading? No. Not that that would be a bad thing to do. Certainly, and every story is different, and certainly, uh, you know, one evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in a person's life, there's different, many different evidences and fruits, but certainly one evidence could be that a person has an increased desire to pray and read God's Word. Absolutely, the Holy Spirit can do that in people's lives, and he does do that. But I want you to notice in this story, that is not the first evidence we see that Zacchaeus has been saved. That's not the first evidence we see that Zacchaeus has met with Jesus. The first evidence we see that this man has repented, that he has been radically changed, is it radically changes what he does with his money. That's the first evidence. That's the first thing. The Holy Spirit touches him. Jesus comes into his life. He meets with Jesus. And the first fruit we see is it changes how he thinks and how he handles his money. I'm going to tell you today, that's actually true of everyone who really encounters Jesus. Every person, see, we would love to have a, a, a division between our money and our spiritual life. That's our devotional life and the church and all that sort of stuff. And if I meet with Jesus, I'm going to have more of a devotional life. I'm going to go to church. Well, absolutely, these are wonderful things. These are amazing things in your walk with the Lord. But if you actually have an encounter with Jesus, if you walk with Jesus... It's not just going to touch those areas of your life. It's also not just going to touch your money. It's going to touch everything. But if you really encounter Jesus, you can absolutely bet it will radically change. Everyone in Scripture who met with Jesus or was filled with the Spirit, I'm going to show you some stuff in Acts and just a little bit as well, it radically changed how they thought about money, what they did with their money, how they spent their money, and how they handled their money. Look at this passage. Zacchaeus doesn't just give a thousand bucks to charity. He doesn't, you know, well, Jesus, this is so amazing meeting you, and now kind of out of my excess, I give a little bit. Look what it says up there, uh, verse 8. Half, half my goods. Okay? And the other thing I want you to notice here is this, the, uh, the story does not in any way tell us what they talked about when they were together. It doesn't tell us how long they were together, uh, what they ate or whatever. I assume they ate something probably together. It seems like something they would have done, but it doesn't tell us what they did together. It doesn't tell us what they talked about. But nowhere in this story is it ever implied that Jesus told him to give some money. It doesn't, nowhere in this story is it implied. that, In fact, the implication, how this story is told, is it really seems like this is a spontaneous act. Okay? It's not that Jesus sat him down and gave him a money message series. Okay? He certainly didn't listen to this series that we're having at Southland. Okay? So he didn't get a financial planning teaching from Jesus and Jesus sit down and guilt him into, you know, when you start following me, you've got to get generous. That is not what happened. He met with Jesus. They talked about life, whatever they talked about. And at the end of it, Zacchaeus said, I give half right now. And I think a lot of people sometimes maybe wonder, what do you do with the other half? He spent the rest of his life giving that half away. He says, half my goods, just like that. Boom, one meeting with Jesus, half my goods I give to the poor. Now, my question is, and again, so look, if we go up the verse before, can you guys underline that joyfully? Oh yeah, there it is. Um, there is no hint here 
at all of Zacchaeus having to do something. Zero. I want to. So my question as I look at this story, as I meditated on, on it this week, is what did Zacchaeus know about Jesus that many born-again believers don't know today? Because lots of us, when it comes to money and Jesus, we have a, we have a fear bond. When it comes to money and Jesus, many of us are actually afraid. If I talk to Jesus about my money, or if I listen to a message series on money, or if I read Jesus' teaching, because Jesus' teaching teachings about everything actually are radical. It's one of the things I love about him. He is radical. But we, I think many Christians today have a, have a fear bond about money that we're actually scared about Jesus and what he would tell us about our money. I want you to notice the radical difference with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has one meeting with Jesus. He's not scared about Jesus taking his money away from him. He's gladly saying, have it. So what did Zacchaeus know about Jesus that many born-again believers today don't know? I mean, even just the fact that he was like such a kid around Jesus, that he would be so joyful to have Jesus over to his house, I think a lot of us today would actually be nervous to have Jesus to our house. I think a lot of Christians today would be nervous. That if Jesus was coming through town, we'd be nervous to have him at our house because we'd be afraid. What is he going to see? What is he going to ask? Is he going to look down on the TV I've got? Is he going to look down on the size of house I got? Is he going to look down on, what, what's he going to ask me to give him? I think many Christians today would actually be nervous to have Jesus over. And my question is, what did Zacchaeus know that so many born-again believers don't know? He was like a little kid to have Jesus over. And at the end of it, he says, I gladly give half, half of my goods to the poor. So what did Zacchaeus figure out that so many of us today have not figured out? Well, I know one thing he figured out in one meeting with Jesus, that many people today don't, we might know this in our heads, but we don't really know it in our hearts. But I'll tell you the main thing Zacchaeus figured out that changed his life, that made him joyful, made him want to give up half of what he had and he never felt like he had to, is he found out that Jesus actually is the greatest treasure. That might not sound profound in terms of, we all know that to be true, but if that ever would get into our hearts, that is absolutely radically profound. See, Zacchaeus had spent his whole life trying to fill the holes in his heart with money, trying to be important by accumulating success and wealth, trying to get power by accumulating wealth, trying to buy happiness with leisure and entertainment and nice homes and everything that wealth can buy. Zacchaeus had spent his whole life accumulating wealth as a way of filling the holes in his heart. He has one lunch meeting with Jesus. And in that meeting with Jesus, he finds out that Jesus is not this harsh, over-spiritual, demanding, distant, unemotional, uncaring person. He meets with the creator of the universe, the very one who formed his soul. He sits and talks with him like a friend and finds him to be warm and alive and full of love and mercy. And at the end of one meeting like that, the holes in his heart are so filled with joy. That's everything he's been trying to fill the holes with. He's been trying to fill those holes with money. He has one meeting with Jesus and he realizes, I don't need this stuff anymore. The reason I was chasing it, the reason I was holding on to it, is because I was trying to fill something inside of me. I have one meeting with Jesus. I don't need the holes filled. Half I give to the poor. Absolutely. What do I need it for? Half I give to the poor. I think for many of us Christians, though, even though we know this in our head that it should be true, 
we actually have very low joy levels in Jesus. Many Christians today, we have very low joy levels in Jesus. We know that something should be true. We know technically he should fill the holes in our heart. But for many of us, it's more a religion. Christianity is still more of a religion than it is a relationship. And so actually, even though we know the theory that Jesus should fill the holes in our heart, many of us actually do not experience Jesus to fill the holes in our heart. And as a result, here's the thing. You and me were made, we were made to feel joy. We were made to feel joy. Our brains, this is physiologically true, this is theologically true, we were made to live with joy. And so if you live with low joy in Jesus, what you're going to end up doing, it doesn't matter that you know all the theory in the world that he should fill the holes in your heart. If, it, if your holes aren't filled, if you're needy for success and happiness and pleasure and joy in these things, if your joy levels in Jesus are low, you will have to try and fill them somewhere. And we're raised in a culture that steeps us in joy is found in stuff. So I need a certain level of home. Everybody else has it. I need a certain level of home to to feel successful. I need a certain level of a vehicle. I need a certain level. Everybody else I know goes on trips and sees this and that and goes here and there. I need to go have a certain number of experiences and places that I go and see in order to be with it, in order to be happy. We're just steeped in that. Now, as Christians, we sit and we know technically that's not true, yet we pursue these things as if they were true. And we hang on to them as if they were true. And the reason we do that is because actually our joy levels in Jesus are very low. But I'll tell you something. If you ever actually encounter Jesus, and I'm not questioning people's salvation. Absolutely not. Totally saved and on their way to heaven. Many Christians like this. But sadly, living a life absolutely consumed with stuff. If you had one encounter with Jesus like Zacchaeus, it would absolutely, utterly change you because your, the holes would fill and then you wouldn't need the stuff that you're trying to fill it with. But here's the thing. Stuff, even though you chase these things, even though we chase these things, it's not just you guys, it's me too. We chase this stuff as if it's going to give us pleasure and we're so afraid, we're afraid to even listen to Jesus about our stuff because we're so convinced that this stuff will give us pleasure that we're afraid he's going to take it away. But in the end, we find that we're miserable. Stuff doesn't make us happy. So we do. We max out our budget. This is why last week I, I preached on debt and contentment. For some of you, that was a radical message. The idea, it's, it's, it's actually so foreign to our culture, even our Christian culture, the idea that you wouldn't buy the biggest house you can possibly afford. You would actually live so far within your means that you would have plenty left over to live generously and be on mission. The idea that I wouldn't take the maximum mortgage out that I possibly can, but I would live with less so I could give more. It's actually foreign to so many of us because we don't know much about Jesus and we're convinced I need bigger to have more happiness. We're convinced of it. But in the end, we get all this stuff and we aren't happier because stuff can never give you joy. You can't get joy from stuff. You can get a buzz. You can prop up certain you know, aspects of your, how you see yourself and your self-worth and sort of stuff. You can prop it up momentarily with stuff, but in the end, you'll be miserable. You can't get joy from stuff. And actually, in the end, aren't you glad? Because if we could get joy from, if, if, if we had to have stuff to have joy, that would rule out most of the entire world. And even some of us here today could never experience joy because they don't have a lot of stuff. 
If you need a big house and a nice vehicle to have joy, then most of the world is in a heap load of trouble in terms of ever being able to experience joy. But if we have each other, if we've, if we've got love one for another and love for Jesus, we can have lots of joy. I remember growing up, and uh, my parents, I've talked about this lots in this series, but, but uh, my parents planting a church in Woodstock, Ontario there. Uh, we grew up with, compared to many people in our culture today, little, okay? Now, I wouldn't say, I, I use that term kind of, you know, like many people in the world would have thought we had lots. But again, compared kind of to what our culture would talk today, uh, we had little. I remember one time, uh, being six years old, we were in a rented bi-level there in Woodstock. I remember getting out of bed one night to, to go to the bathroom. My parents didn't know I was up. They were just, the stairs were just around in, in the corner. There was the, was the fridge in the kitchen. I remember overhearing my parents say, I don't know what we're going to eat tomorrow. All we got in the fridge is a bottle of ketchup. And of course, when you're six years old, you just think, well, mom and dad have got it covered, right? So, you don't worry. I went back to sleep, went to bed, and we were always, we always ate. We never went hungry. I don't, I don't think we ever missed a meal. Somehow God always uh, did stuff, but we had little. I mean, there were four of us kids, and we were driving around, this is in the early 80s, uh, six of us in a family for a, for a few years, we drove around in, a, in an early 1980s Honda Civic, okay? Now, I got a picture I'm going to put up there. The Honda Civics in the early 1980s were not like the Honda Civics even today. They were even smaller, okay? Now, this isn't our exact Honda Civic, I just Googled this one, but it was this color and it was this, it was this make and, and everything. That's what we drove around with six people. Now, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, like, you must have been such a miserable family. How could anybody be happy in those conditions, right? Like, I, I have to have a certain level of house. How can I ever have my cell group over for, for sell? I'm embarrassed because compared to them, my, my house is smaller. It's not as nice. How could I ever be happy in small? You must have been miserable. Six of you driving around in a Civic. Actually, I talked to Dad this morning because I wanted to, co to confirm. I was just talking about some of these stories with him. And he remembered a night where we actually spent the night. We didn't have enough money to be in a hotel. So the six of us slept for night in Woodstock in that. <laughs> so I'm still getting inner healing for things I can't remember. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? We were miserable. We were absolutely, we had so much fun. I remember one of the things that I remember, kind of one of those defining sorts of memories is we had lots of water fights uh, in our family. And, mo and often they, they were mostly between my parents. Uh, uh, I remember one time in particular that we were in this little townhouse in, in Kitchener and, and my uh, must have started, yeah, I think my dad must have said something snarky to my mom and she doesn't take well to snarky. So she took a cup of water and just sloshed him right there at the, at the dinner table. And uh, so he grabbed the pitcher of water and now chased her all over the townhouse, which wasn't very big, so he didn't have to chase her far, and he soaked her with that. Well, she's now at this moment where, is this fun or is she mad, right? So she runs for the tap. She's got a bucket, and Dad actually runs right out of the townhouse. And, uh, and so, and of course, us kids, we're all, we think this is the greatest thing ever. And now my dad is, or my mom is waiting by the door. She's, however long it takes, he's going to drink this bucket of water, right? And of course, my dad being at least slightly carnal and fleshly, goes to the neighbor's house and asks the neighbor lady to come over. And uh, she comes over and opens the door. My dad ducks, and she drinks the entire bucket of water to my mom's horror. Okay? Now, this is the kind of stuff we had tons of fun. I, I mean, tons. And this is the man leading church renewal now, right? I mean, so it's not all good there, right? But... Uh, we had tons of fun. You don't need to have stuff for fun. You don't need to have stuff for joy. 
You don't need that bigger house to have joy. You don't need that nicer vehicle. You need Jesus and you need people. It's love. Joy comes from love. That's where it comes from. Now, I know some of you are uh, maybe objecting a little bit in there, and you're saying, well, Zacchaeus had an advantage, right? Zacchaeus had an advantage because he could actually go for lunch with Jesus. And we can't go for lunch with Jesus, right? Or can we? Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. I want to show you a verse. Revelation 3, verse 20. This is Jesus speaking. If you read this, this verse in your Bible and you have a red letter Bible, this is in red letters. It's from Jesus. And by the way, this passage often quoted at evangelistic crusades, which is totally fine. You can totally use it for that. Um, but as if it's, it's written to non-Christians, if you look at the context of this passage, Revelation 3, this is a letter to the church at Laodicea. This is an invitation to Christians, technically not non-Christians. It's, it's written to us. It's written to the church, Okay. And it's in red letters, which means this is not somebody's dream of what they wish, the kind of relationship they wish we could have with Jesus. This is Jesus instigating with us. This is Jesus telling us what kind of relationship he wants to have with us. And he says to all of us here, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone how many of us here are included under that word, anyone? All of us, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, it doesn't matter who you are, what your gifting is, what you've done. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Now look at the kind of, look at the kind of fellowship Jesus wants to have with you. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Zacchaeus did with Jesus? What Zacchaeus did with Jesus, he had an encounter with Jesus that wasn't cold and harsh and distant and Jesus scolding him. He went up in a tree and Jesus said, I'm coming over. And Zacchaeus, like a little kid, he was joyful, absolutely. And it radically changed his life when he found, when he encountered the grace and warmth and joy and love of Jesus. He was so changed. That's why in this message series, I haven't been trying to go for a whole bunch of financial advice because it's, it's not bad to give financial advice. Not at all. There's a place for that. But actually, the biggest issue isn't that we all need a bunch of financial advice. It's a heart issue. What we're doing with our money stems from our lack of experience of Jesus. Zacchaeus did not need a financial seminar to radically change what he was doing with his finances. He just needed to encounter the one who made him and who loves him. And his soul was so full. Oh, half. I'm changed. I don't need to hang on to anything anymore because Jesus is that good. Now we find here in the written word of God that Jesus is knocking on the door of each of our hearts. And he says, I want to do exactly with you what I did with Zacchaeus. I want to come in. I don't want to scold you and be harsh with you from a distance. If you will just say, yes, I will come in and we'll have, a, we'll have fellowship, it's as if we're sitting down to eat and talk. We will talk and it will be warm and it will be close and it will be alive and it will be real. That's the kind of relationship Jesus wants with each one of us. Now you might be sitting there and you might be going, well, that sounds too good to be true. And some of you have been Christians for 20 years or more. 
And you've never had a relationship with Jesus like that. So it's like these verses just almost become like, it can't actually be true. It's sort of theoretically true, but it can't actually be true. So you say, what, how do I get that? What's the how-to? What's the five-step plan? I want you to notice here there is no five-step plan. This is all initiated by Jesus. The only thing you and I can do is say yes. All we do is we look at a verse like this, we see an invitation, and we say, ha, I want that. I don't have it, or I don't have very much of it. I want more of it. I want you to come in and eat with me, and we can have a Zacchaeus sit down. I want to have that kind of a relationship. All you and me can do is just say yes and say, I'm asking for it. And if you begin to ask him for it, you know what he'll do? He'll say yes, and he'll begin to draw you in. There won't be necessarily one moment where it's like, boom, we just all of a sudden, we didn't have it, now we have it. What he'll do is if you pursue him on this, and you ask him, and you ask him, and you ask him, he will draw you in. And this is the kind of friendship that the creator of the universe wants to have with you and me. Amen. And so I just thought, you know, before we even go on, there's, I, there's another couple of points I want to make about money here coming out of this whole Zacchaeus thing. But before we even do, I would hate to miss this opportunity when we've got a bunch of Christians in a room together and we've got an open invitation to have fellowship with Jesus. I'd hate to miss this opportunity and have us not just ask Jesus and tell him we want it. So I just wrote down a little prayer. Now, uh, formulas. I'm not into formulas. The point here isn't that you get the exact words right or whatever. So guys, if you could put that prayer up though, but we're just going to stop here and we're actually just going to pray it. And it's the kind of prayer. I put it up there because for some people it's helpful to have a prayer maybe you can take home and just say, this is actually, I, I want this kind of a relationship with my maker. Close, warm, alive, full of joy and love, real. Something that'll change me like it changed the chaos. But we're, I'll just read it to you and then we'll, we'll just bow our heads and we'll just pray it right here in the middle of this message. But I just wrote down, Lord Jesus, open my heart to you. I want to have this kind of close, joyful fellowship with you. I want to have a day-by-day walk with you that is warm and alive, just like, just like what we see with the chaos. Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes and I'm just, we're just going to pray that prayer right now. Lord Jesus, You are the one who made us. You are the only one who can fill us. Many of us here today have got our fists clenched tight around our stuff. We're so afraid you're going to take away our stuff. Would you forgive us for having such a poor picture of you? Lord Jesus, you want to fill the holes that we're currently trying to fill with other things. And you promise, you promise, you say you are knocking on our doors. So we're just saying one big, gigantic, corporate yes to you this morning. We want you to come in. We want you to have fellowship with each of us that is just as real as what Zacchaeus had. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. That's something we can pursue. And maybe you felt something just now, and maybe you didn't. But whatever the case, it's something you can ask him for. He's already said yes. He wants you to have it. He wants you to have it. And when you do get it, the point for this money message is That's everything. It'll change your whole life. It won't just change your money, but we're in a money series right now. It'll change the way you think about your money. It'll give you a whole lot more joy. And you know, wherever we see this in Scripture, wherever Jesus, where people encountered Jesus and fell in love with him, or wherever the Holy Spirit touched down powerfully in people's lives, people stop hanging on to their money. It's just part of the fruit of the Spirit. And there's a few places I would love to go in Acts. We're just going to go one. Um, but Acts chapter 2 is a story of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit first comes in the early church. And uh, so the Holy Spirit comes down in power 
and stuff is happening, starting in verse 42, we're going to see what this looked like, like what happened in their lives as a result of the Holy Spirit coming in power on their lives. So let's go there. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay? And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Okay, so again, Zacchaeus has one encounter with Jesus. First, next thing you know, half of what I have I give to the poor. I, I got no more holes inside. What do I need this stuff for? I, I want to give it away. My joy, I'm, I'm just full of joy. I'm bursting. Holy Spirit comes in the early church in Acts. What do we find almost immediately? What are they doing? They're devoting themselves. They're getting together for church. They're breaking bread. They're eating together. They're worshiping. They're learning all sorts of stuff. And they're sharing everything they have. Not just 10% or something like that. They're sharing everything. Okay? Verse 45, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, why were they doing this? Were they doing it because they felt guilty? Were the apostles getting up every week and preaching, you got to give. you got to give everything. you got to sacrifice. you got to die. Were they preaching that? Absolutely not. Zacchaeus was like a little kid. He just wanted to give. Couldn't hold him back. Look what these people are doing. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I could take you to Acts 4. I could take you to other places. And we could look at how when people encounter Jesus and when they get filled with his Holy Spirit in their hearts, this is just the outpouring of what this feels like. It's what, they, what it feels like. So let's just recap briefly what we've looked at so far. First of all, in the New Testament, people didn't give because they had to. They gave because the stuff inside them was so full and they were bursting with joy they wanted to. And I should also know, I don't have time for it in, the, in a message today. I had to take out a whole chunk on Acts 4. If you look at Acts 4, very interesting thing is they didn't all give randomly, individualistically, like we would tend to do in our culture. They actually gave us a church. And you can look at you can look this up. You go and read Acts chapter 4 is a parallel passage to Acts chapter 2. But they gave to the church, through the church, and as a church, which shouldn't surprise us because Jesus died for the church and the church is called his bride. So they did it as a family. They weren't all just off randomly giving. What they did is they gave as, through, and to, as a body, as a family. They did it together. And they did it joyfully. Okay? But they didn't do it because they had to. They did it because they wanted to. And the other thing is, wherever people fall in love with Jesus and are filled by his spirit, they always end up being joyfully generous. So, the question is, well, what do I do if I'm not at that joyfully generous place? Okay, so, so wherever people are filled with the spirit and have encountered Jesus in a real and meaningful way, they just, this joy erupts. They don't have fear about their money. They just, they want to give. They, want, they erupt in generosity. They don't hold on to their stuff. But what happens if, I'm on the other side of the spectrum here. I, I want that. I want to be close to Jesus like that, but I can't make it happen. I can say yes to him. I can pray, you know, Revelation 3.20, and I can want it to happen. It's the most amazing thing, but I can't make it happen. So what do I, what do, I do? The interesting thing is the Bible approaches this thing from both sides of the spectrum. On the one hand, if you encounter Jesus in a, in a meaningful way, it's going to radically change how you think and feel about money. It's going to make you joyfully generous. But on the other hand, it's also possible, and the Bible also teaches from the other side, if we give to Jesus, we can actually grow closer to him. So on the one hand, if 
I meet with Jesus and I'm filled with him, I'm going to want to give. And on the other hand, if I give, I can draw closer to him where I can get filled with him and, and then also want to give more or whatever. But it comes at it from both sides of the spectrum. And I can show you many passages, but I'm just going to look at one here, Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verses 9 to 10. And we're going to look at the discipline of giving, which is when, how do I, if I don't have this already here, can I move towards this by taking action and by having a discipline of giving in my life? And the answer is yes. And there's many, many passages, but I'll show you several here, and then we'll be done. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And Solomon says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting uh, with wine. So we won't meditate on that last part too long here in a Mennonite town. But honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Let's talk about first fruits for just a moment here because as we talk about this discipline of giving, can we, can we also approach God with a discipline of giving? Well, in the Old Testament, God instituted a discipline of giving for the Israelites. Now, the thing you have to understand is the Israelites were an agrarian society. What that means is that's just a fancy way of saying they were mostly farmers, right? So you had uh, people, lots of people were involved somehow with either animals, with sheep or cattle, or with crops. And so God, what God instituted uh, at the beginning of the nation there with Moses is he said, uh, everything that you get first, all you farmers, whatever you get first belongs to me. And this was a way of honoring him. Okay, so if you had a sheep who was going to give birth to her first lamb, the first lamb belongs to God. You didn't get to, that, to eat that. You didn't get to sell that. That went to God. Okay, and then you would have to trust him that the sheep at some point would have more lambs. Or if you had cattle and that cow was going to give birth to a calf, the first calf that that cow gives birth to belongs to God, and then you've got to trust him that that cow is going to have more calves in the future. And if you were raising crops, it was the same thing. Every year, at a certain point in the season, they would have the Feast of First Fruits, which was very early in the season, before your whole crop would come in. The very first fruits of your crop, before you got the rest of the, the crop in, you would take the first stuff that your field produced and you would give that to God. It was not for you. It belonged to God. And then you would have to trust him to bring in the rest of the crops so you could pay your bills and feed your family. Okay? And there was a few reasons for this. First of all, as we see in this passage, uh, why the first fruits is, first of all, giving first to God shows honor to God. Okay? It's an action. You can say that you honor God. But if you give to God out of the extra you have at the end, what you really show is you're in charge of your life, and then you, whatever, here, God, you can have a little tip at the end. When you give to God first, it is an action. It doesn't just show it to everybody else. It actually drives this truth deep into your heart. What you show is everything I have is from you, and all of it belongs to you. That's what it shows to everybody around you, and that's what it shows in your heart. Everything I have comes from you, and everything I have belongs to you. It actually doesn't belong to me. That's what it says. In that way, it shows honor to God. And the second thing, as I just said, is it also forces you to grow in trust for God because not only does it, not only does it speak, and by the way, actions do speak louder than words. And I'm not just talking to everybody else, also to us in terms of our own heart life. Lots of times people want to know, how can I feel more love for God? Uh, often it's through actions. Actions do something in our brains that make truths come alive at a deeper place. 
So when we show God consistently a discipline of first fruits, what it does is it actually does something in my own heart that says, actually, I don't believe my house and my stuff belongs to me or my cows or my sheep or my crops, whatever, because I give to God first. It's actually all his and it's all from him. But then it also forces me to grow in trust for him because if I give to him first before I take care of myself, I have to trust that with the rest of the crop and the rest of everything, he's going to take care of me. And actually, then you get into this wonderful love relationship because this is actually what love looks like. This is what love looks like in a marriage. This is what love looks like between human beings and God. This is what love looks like in the Trinity between God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus. Love is expressed through giving and receiving. So you give, so you say, I just want to take care of myself and then I'll give my extras to God. You actually miss out on what it means to really walk with Jesus. There is a joy you can only feel in giving and then letting him give back. So in first fruits, what the Israelites got to do is have this wonderful love relationship with God where in trust and in faith, I give to you because it belongs to you. And then they got to know the joy of him then turning around and taking care of them. And they could be grateful to him for that. Honor the Lord with your wealth. You know, worship. It's easy to come to church on a weekend, and depending on your personality, for some, they just naturally gravitate to this. It's easy to come here and sing words of praise to Jesus. And by the way, that's good. That's really good. We should do that. That's what the Psalms are all about. More and more, I'm a kind of person, I want to every day be praising the Lord and telling him I love him. And at our services, to tell him we love him is a wonderful thing. We need to always do it. We need to do it more, to praise God, to tell him how good he is, to thank him. But do you know that if you only give to God with your mouth and it doesn't touch the rest of your life, your money, and your time, what you are giving him is cheap. It actually doesn't count for much. It's actually true. Unless, unless a gift costs you something, it's not worth much, is it? Some of you like to re-gift gifts at Christmas, and I know that because I sometimes do that. Um, <laughs> When you re-gift to someone a gift that has cost you nothing, you didn't want it in the first place, that's why you're re-gifting it, that gift really isn't very meaningful. Now, hopefully you can kind of cover up that fact and hopefully they'll take it maybe as meaningful, but it isn't really meaningful. If I don't put any thought or effort into a gift or no money into a gift, it's not a meaningful gift, okay? And sometimes if we actually love someone, there will come moments in time, whether it be in your marriage or with someone in your family or with a close friend or with God, there are moments when you love someone when the only way to express that love is you must give something costly. Honor God with your wealth. With your wealth. You know, there's a fascinating story. The last chapter of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 24 uh, David has taken a census of Israel, which was a sin. He shouldn't have done it. And uh, so God is, is judging Israel. And the angel of the Lord actually comes to Jerusalem, and he's going to judge the city of Jerusalem. And at the, at the last moment, God relents in his mercy. He relents. And the angel of the Lord is standing at a threshing floor just outside the city of Jerusalem. And the prophet comes to David and says, you need to go there and offer a sacrifice. So David rushes over to this threshing floor, and he's going to offer a sacrifice to, to, to God here so that the angel of the Lord will stay his hand. And, and the man who owns the threshing floor 
He loves David. He loves God. He just says, here, have the threshing floor. I just want to give it to you. You just take it and you do whatever you want. Here, take some cattle, sacrifice them, whatever you want. You just take it. Now I want you to see David. I'm going to put it up there on the, on the screen. And I want you to notice what David says to this man. So this man has good intentions. I want to give it to you for free. But the king said to Arona, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. Look at this. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. If your love for Jesus is ever going to become real, it's going to have to touch your money at some point. There are, did you know there are cords of love in your heart? There are cords of love deep in your heart that can only be played. You can only feel them. You can only touch them when you give something that costs I've missed this way too many times in my life, but occasionally you have these precious moments. I remember one time, uh, early in our marriage, we had, we had saved a couple of years uh, for a house, and I was going part-time to school, working part-time. I was making like 18000 a year. We are making hardly anything. We were scrounging together, living very cheaply, and we finally saved up bare minimum. We went and visited the banks, and we had saved a bare minimum what we would need for a housing down payment, like, and, that, and that we knew exactly what we needed. The banks had told us we had saved it up and we were good to go. And I'll never forget. And again, I, these are, these, some of these moments are just, they're just so precious. And I, I share it with you only as an encouragement because there are certain things you can only feel for God. There are certain strings deep in your heart that you can only play when you give him something that costs. And I'll never forget, and he'll never demand them. He didn't tell Zacchaeus, you have to give. Never. There's nothing in there. Zacchaeus wanted to. That was the beauty of it. And I'll never forget being in prayer time one, uh, as this is just in this whole time period. And, uh, and suddenly it just came over me. He has been so good to us. Some of the things, prayers that he had answered and some of the things that he had done in, in Ladon's life and in my life were, were just so amazing. And I just said to him, Lord Jesus, I just love you. And sometimes words aren't enough. And suddenly the idea just came into my head. It's like, Lord, I want to show you I love you. I want to even give up this dream of a house. I want to give you a chunk of this down payment that has taken us forever to scrounge together. At least it felt like forever at the time. And I just want to give it to you. And just in that moment, there are precious moments with the Lord that you can only have when you live in that place. You can tell him you do it. But there's something that becomes real in your heart. And, and I had to, there was this precious moment with the Lord, and he was so real. And so I, and then, of course, my next prayer was like, Lord, what is LaDawn going to say? So I, I, hopefully you just prepare her for this, right? And so I went home, and she's just so incredible, loves Jesus. She said yes. And so we were able to give a chunk of our down payment, which totally wiped out our potential to get a house. And, but you know that it wasn't just one moment. When you do something that makes it real, your relationship with the Lord, lots of people want to have more real relationship with the Lord. At some point, you've got to step out and you've got to make the relationship real instead of just having it theoretical in your head. And so we stepped out and there was this season of our lives. It was, it was precious, the walk with the Lord. You do something like that, it literally, I can't, how do I even explain it? How do I put it into words? But it changes something inside of you and he's just there. You're going through your day and you can just feel him there. He's real. You know it's real and you're living it with him. There are things, there are things in your heart you can only feel when you give to the Lord a sacrifice that hurts. Now the amazing thing is, 
And this doesn't always happen. We don't give to get. And I had no intention. I did not think he would give back. The amazing thing is, and then this is where, I mean, God is just so good. You can never outgive God. You can never outgive God. The crazy thing is, and I won't share all the, the, the nitty-gritty financial details, but within a couple of months, a series of things happened, and some really amazing financial miracles happened. And within six months, we were in the house that we're still living in today. Now, you know what's amazing about that? We now have a God story to share with our kids. You know, if you never, I think of that woman before Jesus' crucifixion, right? She breaks that, that perfume over his feet, and everybody goes, that was stupid. Like that was, you know, whatever it cost, a year's salary or something. It was her whole retirement savings plan, whatever that was. That was stupid. You just went over the top and Jesus says, don't you condemn her. That story will be told everywhere until, I mean, forever. We're still reading and talking about it today. And you'll never have a story like that to pass on to your kids until you go into that place and find that actually Jesus can fill the deepest places of your heart. And so it's been our pleasure. I mean, LaDonna and I, we both grew up in, in, uh, in homes where we were taught this, and, and many people aren't even taught it today, but we have all of our lives. It is our joy every time we get paid to write a check and tithe and give to the church. That's our joy. We don't do that because we have to. We do that because we want to. In fact, whenever our kids see us writing the checks when it's on a Sunday morning, uh, you know, I've told Charlie and all the other kids, they all know when dad's writing a check for church or something, it's always the same thing. Today is a good day. Today is a good day because we get to give to God for all he's done for us. I've told my kids this a hundred times. I, I love to go to church more when I get to give than when I don't get to give. Today is a good day. Because God is good. And again, it's not about have to. A lot of Christians are forever asking, what does the Bible say I have to give? So do you, do you want me to answer that question for you this morning? Do you know that the Bible, the New Testament, does not tell you how much you have to give? It doesn't. It doesn't actually tell you you have to give 10% in the New Testament. In fact, uh, most of the stories we see where people got filled with the Holy Spirit and were giving, they gave a lot more. Zacchaeus gave half and actually were sharing everything. The New Testament does not tell us that you have to give anything, but it does show us that anybody who has truly encountered Jesus will want to give. So I think the, the discipline of giving is important on this part of the spectrum to draw us in, just like the discipline of reading your Bible and pray. But it doesn't say in the Bible that you have to read your Bible and pray every day, and you won't lose your salvation if you miss it. But isn't it a wonderful thing? Isn't it a necessary thing to meditate on God's word, to worship him? To spend time in prayer, it's absolutely necessary to have a relationship with him. Did you know it's every bit as necessary to give to him as part of having a relationship with him? So when I disciple people and I talk to people who don't have a discipline of giving, one of the places I don't start it as law, this is what you have to give. I think there's a couple reasons why, by the way, why the Bible doesn't tell us we have to give 10%. First of all, it would steal a lot of our joy because a lot of people then just give what they have to. It's just, oh, I gotta give this. I think another reason that he doesn't tell us we have to give 10% is because for a lot of people it would steal their joy because we should be given a lot more. Zacchaeus gave half. Imagine if he would have stopped at 10%. His joy levels would have been way lower. Why would you want to miss out on that? For a lot of people, I've read so many biographies and stuff over the year too, years too, many successful Christians over the centuries have made it their goal to reverse tithe, which is I'm going to live on 10% and give to Jesus 
And so there's no way God in his written word is going to limit our joy. But having said that, what's a wonderful starting point that has been tried, tested, and true by millions upon millions of Christians, and I have found it to be true in my life as a great starting point, not as a finishing point, but as a starting point. When I disciple people and I talk to people who don't have a discipline of giving, just like when I talk to someone who doesn't have a devotional life, I say, you're never going to walk very closely with Jesus unless you spend time in his word and prayer. Well, you're also not going to walk very closely with Jesus unless you have a discipline of giving. That's the only way your prayers are ever going to become real is if it somewhere touches your wealth in your life. So I think a great starting point, not as a salvation thing, not as a God is mad at you thing, but a great starting point is 10%. And one of the reasons I think 10% is a great starting point for people who have never given is because, first of all, it's got to be enough that it hurts a little bit. And yet it's not silly. But 10% is a great starting point and then from there, you can just grow. You can grow in your giving. I would never want to limit you to that. But 10% is a great starting point because it's, it, it's enough to hurt. It's enough to force you to make some decisions. And it's enough for you to say, I honor you, Lord, with the first fruits of my wealth. Actually, your house doesn't belong to you. Your van and your cars and your RFPs don't belong to you. They all belong to him. And how can we say that in theory and not have it be a practice in our lives? When we give to him first, we honor him and we show him worship and it forces us to trust him. So here's my weekly challenge and then let's pray because the whole point of this is not don't give because of need. This is not me begging. This, the point of this series, the point of this message is not to beg anyone because the church needs money. That is absolutely not what this is about and I don't want anyone to give out of that. I'll tell you what this is about. This is about you getting to find joy in Jesus. Your money is an excuse to get to know him more. And it's a wonderful way for you to practice trusting and honoring him. So here's a couple challenges for you this week. Talk to God this week and your spouse if you have one. It's always good to talk to them if you're married. At least once a week. Whether they need it or not, right, or you need it or not. But talk to God this week about your giving. Do you have a discipline of giving? Are you honoring God with your wealth? And then secondly, tied in, because this is all tied together, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. Would you like your relationship with him to get closer, more real, warmer, and more alive? Ask him every day this week. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and let's just go to him, the creator of the universe, the maker of our souls. He loves us so much, and we just want to worship him. Jesus, we just lift your name up today in this church. And everything I just spoke about today, Lord, it's all yours. All the money we have, all the blessings we have, every good and perfect gift comes to us from you above. We love you, Jesus. We're going to sing another song now to you of worship. We just want to lift up your name. We want more opportunities to get to sacrifice for you and to love you. You have filled us with joy. You have filled us with good things. You fill every hole in our hearts. We want to bless your name, and I want this church to be a church that blesses your name, that this church would be a house of prayer where we just love you. When we get together for a service, we just want to sing, and it's real. And we give you our lives, and we give you our love, and we give you our worship, Jesus. Would you bring us into that place and let us use our money to get closer to you. In your precious name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.